welcome to episode 78 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk to Ashley M. Beardsley as a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series. You went to this event and there was this shrimp canoe. So how do we study these in-person events and the food that we experience with other people? So that's why in my dissertation, I study what I refer to as cooking text. So it's any text or piece of media that we use to circulate cooking knowledge and that people are using to collaborate and kind of write together and create these moments that we can capture on social media or in cookbooks and, and things like that. You'll hear more from Ashley in a bit, but first I want to direct your attention to a special opportunity to serve as a guest editor of Composition Studies. Composition Studies invites proposals from potential guest editors for an open access digital special issue to be published in summer 2022. This upcoming year marks 50 years of composition studies, and this summer special issue will be the third they have published. They invite proposals in all areas of the discipline. Their first summer special issue arrived summer 2020, when Samantha Sturman, Dawn Shepard, and Heidi Estrom added an issue on co-requisite writing this past year, and through a global pandemic, Ursula Orr, Christina Cedillo, and Kim Weiser created an issue about justice-oriented approaches to supporting BIPOC faculty in disciplinary and institutional spaces. And that issue's publication is imminent. Composition Studies welcomes formal proposals of around 500 words about the topic importance, contribution, and possible structure of the issue. If available, they also welcome a draft of the CFP you would use to solicit submissions for the issue. They also seek inquiries and creative ideas in want of guidance. If you have any of the above, please contact them via email at compstudiesjournal at gmail.com by October 15th, 2021. Ashley M. Beardsley holds an MFA in writing and poetics with a concentration in poetry from the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, Naropa University, and a certificate in publishing from the Denver Publishing Institute, the University of Denver. She is a Ph.D. candidate in Rhetoric and Writing Studies at the University of Oklahoma, where her research focuses on food and cookbooks as multimodal, collaboratively written community texts. Digital and Community Literacy, the Rhetoric of Food, and Feminist Rhetoric. She also works as the Assistant Director of Technical Writing and Communication teaches technical writing, and is an assistant editor of Kairos, a journal of rhetoric, technology, 
and pedagogy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ashley M. Beardsley. What's your name, your title, your institution, your role there? What do you do? So my name is Ashley Beardsley, and I am going into my final year as a PhD candidate at the University of Oklahoma, where I study rhetoric and writing studies. So my focus is on the rhetoric of food, and I study digital and community literacy and how food is an understudied form of constitutive rhetoric. So that's kind of my broad research interest. But in addition to my dissertation, I also work as the assistant director of technical writing and communication. So I do admin work, I work on curriculum development, and I also teach tech writing while I'm doing all the dissertating. Let's let's dive back into that undergrad study abroad trip. You went with a group, I guess, from St. Bonaventure University. That's where you got your undergraduate degree. Tell us a little bit about that experience at St. Bonaventure. What led you to be a, a, a Bachelor of Arts in English and in theater? Yeah, so I always, this sounds really cliche, but I've wanted to be a professor for a very long time. And I only applied to one university, which was St. Bonaventure because I was already accepted to the State University of New York at Fredonia. I was doing concurrent enrollment as a senior. So I went to St. Bonaventure and I toured there before I applied and I loved everything about it. And I knew I was like, okay, the English department is great. This is what I want. And in the summer of 2011, yeah. I did a summer study abroad and went to Italy. And it was really just because I wanted to study abroad. It was my second study abroad during a summer. But that program specifically, um, my ancestors originally on my dad's side came from Sicily. So I was interested in, in going there and seeing it. And for me, education always felt like a way to travel and see the world. So what better way to spend my summer than taking classes in Perugia and eating Italian food? I'll admit, I I don't know where St. Bonaventure, New York is. So like, I was immediately thinking, oh, it's New York City. It's in this big metropolis (laughs) area. So while you were talking, I like quickly Googled and pulled up the campus and oh my goodness, it's beautiful and very rural, it looks like. Yeah, so it's in the southern tier of New York. Um, So, I mean, it's about an hour and a half from where I grew up. And that's about six hours outside of New York City. Mm. And it's a very small university, 2,000 undergraduates, roughly. And I had the opportunity to tour the campus when I was a senior. Or No, yeah, I had the opportunity to tour when I was a junior. Um, because as a first-gen college student, I was in a program called Upward Bound, and we got to go and tour campuses across the state and in close states as well, and St. Bonaventure won me over 
uh, basically because it was beautiful from day one. I wanted to stay close enough that I could live on my own, but I could still go home if I wanted or needed to. Right. It looks like you made a decision to go far away, right? For your (laughs) MFA from there. You're like enough of St. Bonaventure. No, I joke. But you did get your MFA in writing and poetics poet, po- with a poetry concentration from Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. How did you make your way from New York to Boulder, Colorado, and why? So as an undergrad English major, I focused and took mainly literature classes on poetry. And in a contemporary British and American literature class, I learned about the beat generation. <laughs> and so I, I knew about them, you know, on the road, Jack Kerouac, that sort of stuff. But in this course, my professor told us that Allen Ginsberg and Ann Waldman co-founded a university in Boulder, Colorado. And this was when I was a junior and it just planted that seed that how cool is, is this place, this little university in Boulder? And so when I was applying to MFA programs, I cast my net pretty broad and applied to, I think, six or seven programs um, and then chose to go to Naropa specifically because of the connection to the Beat Generation. The school itself, the writing school, is called the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. So that's where I studied and got my MFA. Are you a disembodied poet? (laughs) (laughs) I would say yes. Um, the idea behind disembodied poetics, the naming of that, is that Colorado was a place for poets to come and gather. And when the school was started, I mean, and still poets come from all over the world to study there and teach there. And then we go back and disperse to wherever we came from or we move around. So it's always kind of this home base as a disembodied poetic perspective. What are some of the things you took away from your experience at Naropa? Uh, what are some of the, I guess, <sighs> things that you value after your experience? So Naropa is a contemplative Buddhist inspired university. So I went from a Catholic Franciscan Institute to this Buddhist inspired yes. place. Thank you for explaining that for the listeners, because as I, as I mentioned, I looked up, you know, St. Bonaventure, and I was going to fill that, fill that in. Yeah. So, you know, I didn't choose St. Bonaventure because of the religious affiliation and I didn't choose Naropa because of the, the Buddhist connection, but they both kind of influenced who I am as an individual in a spiritual way. And the way that I view community in particular. Mm. So at Naropa, uh, the things that I I took away were just kind of the contemplative side of being in the moment. And my my close friends will tell you that when I got to Naropa, I was pretty wired up, (laughs) very easily angered very quick New York kind of attitude, even though St. Bonaventure is super, you know, small, but I was very like high strung. And over the years, 
I've embraced some of the more meditative qualities that Naropa kind of promotes, specifically thinking about mindfulness and community, which played into what I ended up deciding to research when I think about communities and online in in-person communities as well. Coming back east, I guess, uh, is, is one way to put it, from Colorado uh, to the Midwest, to the University of Oklahoma, where, as you mentioned earlier, you're um, studying for your PhD in rhetoric and writing studies. How did you wind up in Norman? How are you enjoying your experience in Norman? And then we'll kind of move from there into talking about food. <laughs> so it was that magical moment where you realize your GRE scores are going to be invalidated in the next year. And I wonder, did you go straight through or, or after, after, after Europa, did you have some, some work experience, industry experience you did? What did you do after Naropa? Yeah. So as a writer, I had that quintessential moment where I, I knew I wanted my PhD, but I went straight from undergrad to my MFA and I was tired. Yeah. So my advisor actually suggested taking a time off mm. and she said to take a year. Otherwise it's super hard to go back, but okay. I ended up taking four years off just the way that it worked out. So I graduated from Naropa and then I did a certificate program at the university of Denver in publishing. So I went to the Denver publishing Institute and was like, okay, I'm going to pursue a career in book publishing and editing. And I had an internship in Boulder at a, a publishing house that unfortunately no longer exists. But I started looking for work in publishing and ended up being a proofreader for Sports Authority Corporate. So I went from my MFA into super consumerist industry work. Yeah. So I was proofing print and digital circulars to sell sporting equipment. And then Sports Authority ended up going bankrupt. <laughs> so I was, I was on the precipice of, you know, I'm losing my job anyway. And I was miserable being at a nine to five. So I went back to adjuncting, which I had been doing. I was teaching one class while I was still working at Sports Authority because I couldn't get away from teaching. And so I emailed my boss and I was like, I need more. And so I went adjunct full-time and taught at three different institutes across or in Colorado, across Denver and Aurora. And then I also worked as the business development and marketing associate for a social enterprise called Art Restart that was part of Denver's only daytime shelter for women, children, and transgender individuals. So I did advertising and planned events and wrote ad copy and stuff like that for Art Restart. That's cool. Okay, now how did you get to normal? <laughs> yeah, and so fast forward four years after <laughs> I did all of this during those four years, and my GRE scores we're about to expire and I didn't want to have to take it again. And so I told myself if I didn't get into a PhD program now, it was going to be now or never. So I applied to a whole bunch of programs, 
um, ended up getting into two and chose to come to OU because I was really excited about the first year composition curriculum and being able to teach in FYC while I was, you know, doing my discs and studying. How's life in Norman? Pandemic aside, it was, you know, it was good before the pandemic. Um, there's a lot of good food. Surprise, I was surprised by this. I guess I shouldn't have been. But it's really, this is another one of those really beautiful campuses. So being able to walk around campus is always super beautiful. Where I live, we can walk downtown. And that is magical for us. We can go to different breweries and um, just dinner and shopping. And so we'll often just take a stroll down Main Street and uh, find a place to have a beer and hang out. And then Oklahoma City is only, depending on which part, is only 25 minutes. Oh, cool. I did not know it was that close. Yeah. So there's, I mean, I was just in OKC at a beautiful uh, public botanic garden over the weekend. And so there's a lot of really cool spaces in Oklahoma City. So it's been nice to explore. It's a lot smaller than Denver. <laughs> so that's that's also kind of a plus, though. Let's shift gears and talk a little about your research. Uh, specifically, you know, let's jump in and talk about your dissertation. Your dissertation title is Feminist Food Rhetoric, Women's Rhetorical Strategies Across Instagram, Food Podcasts, and Community Cookbooks. Here's the thing. I don't know a whole lot about this topic. So listeners and Ashley, bear with me. Tell me a little bit though, Ashley, how did you, how did you come to be interested in food rhetorics, right? And then dive in and tell us a little bit about your dissertation project. So first I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> Turn it back oh, to no. you. Okay. Okay. Hopefully this doesn't backfire. Um, so can you tell me about one of your favorite events or social gatherings that you've attended? And specifically, what do you recall about this event? Yes, I can. Uh, I went to a wedding reception and I remember that they had shrimp and a canoe, like, you know, that you could come up and like get the, it was like iced and the canoe was like filled with ice and it was like shrimp on top of it. And I, I mean, frankly, I thought it was the most magical thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, so that's just one event that kind of sticks out the shrimp canoe. Perfect. So what you just kind of remembered there is you remembered this food from a specific event. And when we think about moments in life, there are often food or foods and people that are associated with them. So I started noticing that for me, everywhere I went, everything I enjoyed the most always revolved around people and sharing food. So my first year in the PhD program here, I was kind of struggling to figure out what I was studying. And 
one of my professors just asked me, well, what do you like? And I said, food and cookbooks. And she said, well, that's what you should study in this class. So I started looking at, this was an 18th and 19th century rhetoric class. So I looked at a 19th century community cookbook. And from there, I just kind of didn't want to look at anything else. It became, cookbooks became the focus of everything I was studying. But when I started to think about my dissertation, I didn't just want to study cookbooks because as you said, you went to this event and there was this shrimp canoe. So how do we study these in-person events and the food that we experience with other people? So that's why in my dissertation, I study what I refer to as cooking text. So it's any text or piece of media that we use to circulate cooking knowledge and that people are using to collaborate and kind of write together and create these moments that we can capture on social media or in cookbooks and, and things like that. So what are some cooking texts or, or what are some genres that you're looking at? Some examples of, of things that you're analyzing. Yeah, so in my dissertation, I look at Instagram, radio shows, and community cookbooks. So on Instagram, I study one very specific cooking community, which is Bake Club. And it was started by Christina Tozzi. And it's a pandemic community. So I talk a lot about uh, coming together to use food to combat COVID-19. And then I have another chapter that's radio shows where I look at the Splendid Table. So for those who might not know what the Splendid Table is, it's it started as a live call-in show on Minnesota Public Radio, but it's now a podcast and it's played on NPR. So you might hear it if you tune in to your local NPR station, many of them play the Splendid Table. And then in the final analysis chapter, I'm looking specifically at community cookbooks from the Junior League of Denver and thinking about how the Junior League, which has a history of supporting women and it's a, a women-run organization, how they use cookbooks for fundraising. And community cookbooks have been around forever, but the Junior League of Denver specifically, their community cookbooks are a little bit more interesting. They kind of serve to memorialize the Junior League of Denver's charity events as well. And so in that chapter, I think about memory and specifically memorializing fundraising events for the Denver community. And the cookbook also supports the Junior League of Denver's children's literacy initiatives. So they sell these cookbooks and all of the, the proceeds go into supporting things like their literacy program. I have a two-pronged question. One, why did you choose to focus on these, um, these two sites, right, in your last two analysis chapters? And how have you managed to perform research on, on the on texts that originate in distant places right like from minnesota and and in colorado when you're in oklahoma 
So in the radio chapter specifically, I think about how radio has historically been a way for people to find community when they no longer live in that location. So I started thinking about archival research in that chapter. And there was an old radio show where they, they called it Homemaker Radio Programs. And it really started in the 1950s. And it was promoted as this way for women to get domestic education when they no longer lived with someone who could teach them how to cook or how to run a home. So throughout, as I was looking at radio programs and how they functioned to teach people how to cook, I started thinking about, well, what radio shows do we currently have? What podcasts exist to kind of provide that local community? And so one of the longest running radio shows and podcasts that we have is The Splendid Table. So it started in the 90s and it was, you know, it takes, Lynn Rosetto Casper was in Minnesota. And so you get a lot of Minnesota, but throughout the program, you also get local US food. So she has people call in from all over and they ask questions that are specific to things that they have access to. And there's also guests that talk about local foodways. So I wanted to think about something that was popular enough and had a long enough history that I would have enough episodes to, to analyze. I also didn't want to make my dissertation just pandemic related. So, because I could have, when I, when I started thinking about it, I was thinking about choosing um, this podcast called Home Cooking, but that was a pandemic podcast. And that was very much in the same way, trying to create this kind of local community and teach people how to cook while they were geographically distant. But I wanted something that went beyond the pandemic. And then for the cookbook chapter, I chose the Junior League of Denver, uh, I like to say because I lived in Colorado, but <laughs> there's also strong analytical purposes there too. So the Junior League of Denver has been publishing community cookbooks for decades. And I wanted a junior league that had at least two cookbooks that I could compare. And I wanted a cookbook from the 20th century and the 21st century to see what rhetorical strategies they were using, if they changed, how they developed. And so the, the Junior League of Denver has been publishing cookbooks since the 1980s. And when I started my research, they had actually published the most recent Junior League cookbook overall. So their last Junior League cookbook came out in 2019. And that is the most current Junior League cookbook that I could access. More after this. Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. 
The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about The Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find The Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at The Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. Some of this work <clears throat> that you're doing in the dissertation is starting to go places and do things and you have an article called you are a bright light in these crazy times the rhetorical strategies and literacy practices of hashtag bait club that counter pandemic isolation and that's scheduled to appear in popular culture studies journal in april 2022 tell us a little bit about that project and what can readers expect when it comes out next year yeah, so that is a special issue, and it's a special issue on food, pop culture, and the COVID-19 pandemic specifically. So in this, I, I take what I started in chapter two of my dissertation and highlight some of the key findings in what I'm looking at within women in this specific community. And so there are a couple of different rhetorical strategies that I identify that Bait Club starts to use overall. And one of the things that I noticed the most was that joy and sharing that joy really became important during the pandemic. And so in my article, uh, I look at Instagram posts, but then I conducted interviews with nine Bait Club members overall, and the, the article looks at three of the women and how they used Bait Club to kind of combat the isolation that was going on during the pandemic. And specifically, when I think about what was going on, one of the members in an interview said to me, that when COVID started, her volunteer opportunities shut down. So she lost her kind of this big part of herself that was something that not only she did, but she enjoyed giving back to her community. And during the pandemic, Big Club was a way to continue doing that. So a lot of what I look at in that article is thinking about how the women who participate try to find joy in baking for themselves and then sharing it with others. And that sharing process, it happens virtually because, and I'm a, I'm a big club member as well, 
because we hashtag everything with Bait Club, but also Christina Tozzi, who started the Bait Club that I follow, taught us how to be reverse porch pirates. <laughs> so it was very early on during the pandemic, and she was teaching us how to make cookies and just basically said, wrap it up, drop it off on someone's porch. And so the members that I interview and I talk about in this article, they talk about how delivering those, those baked goods and sharing it with the community in that way was really this way for them to, to find joy and pleasure during the pandemic. And Bake Club still continues today. So you've got this article coming out, which is exciting, but I know that you're conferencing and working on other things. Uh, so it's kind of an offshoot of what I've been looking at and, and thinking about on social media in particular. So what I'm putting together for my next project and hope to present on at Computers and Writing is Bakers Against Racism. So you can find them on social media. I look specifically on Instagram, but on June 4th, 2020, Bakers Against Racism launched as a way to fight the unjust treatment of Black people in this country. And so it was started by three chefs who, they all live in DC, but they created Bakers Against Racism as a way to start a virtual nationwide bake sale to raise money for organizations across the country that are doing work to, you know, fix systemic racism and combat the issues that we're facing in this country. So on June 15th, baked goods went on pre-sale. And then June 20th of 2020 was their first virtual bake sale. And so they thought they'd get maybe 80 people. Over 2,000 people participated in this first virtual bake sale. And it wasn't only nationwide, it was worldwide. And so all of the proceeds that people from home cooks to professional chefs, everything that they raised, people donated to local organizations, national organizations to combat systemic racism and support Black Lives Matter movements. So what I'm looking at in Bakers Against Racism is how, and this is kind of the language they use, how we use food to join forces and activate. So what are we doing digitally with food that moves from the digital to the in-person because there's still a material good that you're, you're selling and you're getting out to people. So they arranged the bake sale and what the chefs did was they provided all of the documentation you needed. So guides, graphics, everything to promote your bake sale and kind of how to do this because a home baker might not know, well, what do I need to ask people when I collect their information to sell them a baked good? So they created all of the materials for everyone. And so I'm going to look at the hashtag that's associated with Bakers Against Racism and focus specifically on the circulation of the Bakers Against Racism graphics 
to identify the rhetorical strategies that the co-founders of Bakers Against Racism use to activate the baking community. Because what we see when we go on social media in the, the early days of this first bake sale is everyone using the graphics that they made to promote their bake sale. So I'm thinking about virality and circulation and how we move this digital social activist rhetoric into the real world. I appreciate so much this this move uh, in your research and, and in this discussion, really, from discussing food and that shift of food as a social justice like issue or within the realm of as a social justice, as tackling social justice issues, as a way to tackle social justice issues. One of the things I think about when I think about your research is this nexus of food and technology. And there's a, there's the commonality, the, the, the commonplace I think is access, right? Access to food, access to technology. How does access play into your work? Uh, one of my exam questions was about access. <laughs> and I felt like I got really ranty when I thought about access to technology. Um, when I think about access in particular with food, I think about what's known as a food desert. Food deserts are going to be those places where there's limited access to fresh food. And specifically, it falls without of a one mile radius from an individual. So when we think about that one mile, it's really significant because for someone who might have they might not have a car or they might work and not be able to go to the supermarket, you know, during a traditional hour, the distance to the supermarket is really important there. So when I think about access to food, I use this in my teaching in my tech writing class specifically. So right now, and in my tech writing class over the summer, my students wrote grants to combat the food insecurity that is faced in Oklahoma. So they research food insecurity specific to, to Oklahoma, and it doesn't have to be just Norman or Oklahoma City. It can be anywhere in the state. And as a team, they come up with a solution to combat and solve the problem of access to food. And so these are mostly engineering or some kind of STEM majors. So they think about building things or providing new transportation and really how can we make food more accessible? What does that look like? What kind of infrastructures do we have in place and what can we build to improve this? So here's here's a question that I think listeners have probably been wondering about since the beginning of this interview. Do you cook? <laughs> yes. Okay. And what are some of your favorite things to cook? So I prefer baking over anything else. Okay. And I've always gravitated toward cupcakes. So I think it was it was this kind of 
I could share it with people. You know, you make a cake and it's really difficult to transport a cake, but you make cupcakes and you can just kind of throw them in a box and bring them with you. And so even as a teenager, I became that person who would bake cupcakes and bring them with me when we had parties. So definitely cupcakes are my go-to. Uh, and then I jumped on the, the sourdough bandwagon during the pandemic. How'd that go? It's going great. So I started Edith after I passed my comprehensive exams in April of 2020. And she's still alive. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting. Anything else you want to talk about before I let you go off for the rest of the day? No, I think that's all the things. That is Ashley Beardsley. Ashley, thanks for sitting with me for an interview. I really enjoyed getting to know you a bit better and learning about your research for sure. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ashley M. Beardsley. She's super smart. I can't wait to see the way she impacts the field in the future, especially with her work at Kairos. Keep rocking out, Ashley. This season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast is just getting started. We're featuring more emerging scholars this season. We have authors. We have activists some established scholars in the field all coming together in the podcast parlor to talk about their life and their work. Make sure you're tuning in. I'll be back next week with another new interview. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Grapes, and... Mac tonight.